Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Well, if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 4. And as you're doing that, I want to ask you a few questions. Uh, What is the correct position for a Christian to take on gun control? Uh, What is the correct position for a Christian to take on immigration? What's the role, biblically speaking, that the government ought to take in caring for the poor? Uh, What about capital punishment? What about global warming? Uh, What's the Christian response to COVID-19? What's the Christian response to protests for equality? Now, underneath all of these questions is the question I want to focus on today, and that is, what is the way of Jesus in politics? And I want us to look as clearly as we can at the biblical teaching about how Christians should relate to politics. And let me say this uh, about the spirit in which we talk about this today, Uh, because obviously political issues are loaded subjects and we don't want to become divisive. Uh, I'd like to ask each of us to approach this subject in a thoughtful, humble, uh, mature, and spirit-sensitive way. We should be able to look at this subject in a way that honors Christ. Actually, there's not a subject we couldn't look at and discuss in a way that honors Christ. And I would like this message to reflect the kind of church that God is calling us to be. Uh, So as we look at the way of Jesus in politics, uh, let's just commit to think about and study this in a way that honors Jesus. All right, let's look at Acts 4. Uh, We're going to begin to look here at how the early believers had to deal with their relationship uh, to political powers. Uh, The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. Okay, so in this passage, Peter and John are in the temple, and Peter has healed a man who had been crippled since birth. And now they're teaching in the temple. And so the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, these governing powers, they're annoyed by this. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men, who, the, the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. Uh, So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. Uh, Then a trial begins, and Peter and John explain what they're doing. And the rulers come to a decision. Now look down to verse 18, Acts 4, 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let him go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. 
uh, Peter and John come to this decision that their ultimate allegiance is to God and that no power on earth, not even the Roman government, had authority over God. And the writer of the book of Acts, which is Luke, wants us to come to this clear understanding that over and above the power of the government is the power of God. Uh, So look at what he says in chapter 5, verse 40, Acts 5.40. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they give them this same order and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. From the very beginning, Christians have struggled with how do we relate to political powers? Uh, If you have a Bible, turn to another passage, uh, Romans 13. Uh, Paul uh, gives some surprising advice here. Uh, Now, you might expect under this kind of persecution that the church would say, well, let's just take over the government. Let's just establish a new government. Let's establish a a Christian government. They don't do that. Uh, Although several centuries later, beginning under an emperor by the name of Constantine and the following rulers, Christianity does in fact become the official religion of the Roman Empire. But a very interesting thing happens. Uh, Question, when do you think Christianity did better? When it was the persecuted minority or when it had held power uh, together with the government? Uh, It's pretty amazing that Christianity flourished when it was the persecuted minority as opposed to when it held power. Uh, Stephen Carter in his book, The Culture of Disbelief, notes that in our country, the original reason for the separation of church and state was not to protect the government from religion. It was to protect religion, people of faith, from the government. There are many countries in Europe that have state churches that are officially tied to the government. Uh, They have government uh, recognized status and power. And if you've spent any time studying the church in Europe, you know that, to put it mildly, uh, they are not thriving because when the government gets involved in religion, Uh, the faith tends to get watered down to the lowest common denominator. Uh, It loses its essential distinctiveness. Uh, So now Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and this is what he says. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do what is right, but for those who do what is wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of the possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. 
Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Uh, now look back at the first verse. Uh, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Uh, now let's just think this one through. We need to understand that this statement was a radical shift in Paul's day. Uh, because historically, the Israelites had thought of themselves as a nation. Uh, they were going to have their own form of government. Uh, they were going to have their own land. And now Paul says, it's no longer the goal of the people of God to have their own independent state. Uh, this is a, a drastic change. Paul says, every person is to submit to the state. No exceptions. No exemptions. Now, in a democracy, this means things like uh, we are to be involved. It, mean thing, it means things like uh, if we're going to participate in the common life, uh, that we ought to vote. It means we ought to be informed, uh, and we don't always do a good job of that. A woman said to Adlai Stevenson one, Stevenson one time, uh, who was an unsuccessful candidate for the presidency, she said, Mr. Stevenson, you have the vote of every thinking American. And Adlai Stevenson said, Madam, that's not enough. I need a majority. Uh, we don't always do a good job of getting informed. Uh, now, an interesting thing about this text is that the conclusion is about paying taxes. And we know from reading uh, historians back in those days that there were all kinds of uh, complaints about the Roman taxation system, uh, which were so strong that a little after Paul wrote this letter, they had to reform the tax code. Uh, hard as it is to believe, people actually uh, tried to get out of paying taxes back in those days. Uh, they didn't wanna pay for the Roman roads. They didn't wanna pay for Roman soldiers. They didn't wanna pay to build these new uh, Colosseums in Rome. Uh, a Christian financial advisor estimates that from working with Christians, 50% of people who are followers of Christ cheat on their income taxes, 50%. Uh, look at verse six, it's right there. The IRS agent is a servant of God. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. So if you just want a real practical takeaway from today, it's this, pay your taxes, pay them with joy. Uh, put a little happy face on your check when you send it in. Write a little note that says, thanks for being God's servant and collecting my taxes. Uh, now, I want to say this. Uh, be very careful to understand the context of this passage because it can be misused. In fact, the Nazis in Germany misused this passage by saying Christians had to support Hitler no matter what he did. Uh, now, we've already seen from the book of Acts that the Bible supports civil disobedience when rulers outlawed uh, the preaching of the gospel. And so the basic principle of this text is in verse 7. Give anyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And that's what I'd like to talk about for the rest of the time that we have today. Uh, pay to all what is due them. Uh, our ultimate allegiance, of course, is to God. And it may well be a lot of scholars think that in verse 7, Paul is reflecting on the words of Jesus when he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. All right, so let's draw out some principles here. 
And the first one is this. God's purpose of salvation is not to be identified with any one country's well-being. God's purpose of salvation is not to be identified with any one country's well-being. You know, all nations have a way of thinking that they're God's favorite. Uh, I grew up in a church that had German roots, and there was a debate in the early days of that church about whether the Bible should be read in German or in English. Uh, These were the kinds of conversations that they had back then. Uh, One time I asked someone about why certain prayers were prayed in German. And the response I got was, well, some people believe God hears better in German. Uh, Now, C.S. Lewis wrote once that one of the primary strategies of the evil one is to promote what he called Christianity and. Christianity and. In other words, if the evil one can't get people to reject Christianity outright, He'll try to get them to fuse it into some other movement or philosophy or cause so that they no longer are committed to what he called mere Christianity. And one of the primary ways of doing that is to have people equate Christian faith with some uh, political movement or ideology or agenda. And it has happened throughout the history of the church. And so... We just need to be real clear on this. The gospel of Jesus Christ transcends every country. It transcends every political agenda, every cause, every party. The word of God stands above them all as the sole authority and judge. And the community that expresses God's dream for this world is his church. It's not a nation or a culture or a society. They have their place, but they are not the bride of Christ. And when they have dried up and withered away, it is the church that throughout all of eternity will be the cherished object of God's love. Now, this has important implications. And I wanna reflect for a moment on what Jesus would not do with his life. Uh, There was one situation in his life in John 6 where Jesus fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish. And the people wanted to make him king. And it's easy to understand why. I mean, if you could take a few loaves and fish and feed 5,000 people, I mean, think of what you could do with one sword or one chariot or one horse. I mean, he could arm a nation. And so there was a movement in his day of people called zealots. And they wanted him to overthrow what was in fact an oppressive government. And this is what uh, John 6, 15 says. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus wasn't interested in going into politics. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean it's a bad business. It's an honorable profession. People need to be involved in it. But it wasn't his business. It wasn't his mission. His business was to advance the kingdom of God. And he would not be turned aside. And he made no apologies about it. And now, I just want to say a word about Blue Oaks, because our business, our purpose, is to advance the kingdom of God, which means we will never align this church in a formal way with some political movement or cause. We are in the business of the gospel. We are in the business of being the church. We are in the business of proclaiming in word and in deed the good news of the availability of life in the kingdom of God. We will not deviate from this. We will not be distracted from this. 
We will not be turned aside from this. And we do it with no apologies, no hesitations, no second thoughts. We are in the business of the gospel. There's a book called The Political Illusion. And the political illusion in our day is that there's a political solution for every problem in life. You know, we don't ever hear a candidate who's running for office say, well, that's just something we can't solve. I mean, we're just fed that there's a political solution for every problem, but there's not. We're not gonna reach the kingdom of God by getting everyone on the same political page. Chuck Colson, who had some experience in this area said, the kingdom of God is not going to arrive on Air Force One. God's instrument is the church. All right, so the first thing is, God's purpose of salvation is not to be identified with any one country's well-being. His plan for the world is that the church would advance the kingdom of God. Uh, Second thing, and this comes right out of the beginning of Romans, and that is, we are to honor our leaders. Uh, We are to pay honor and respect to those who govern. And we're to be involved with politics, but that that involvement should come with an understanding of the way Jesus taught us to live and the way Jesus taught us to act and the way that Jesus taught us to treat other people. Let me just say that again. You and I are to be involved in politics, but we must be involved in politics with an understanding of the life Jesus taught us to live. Uh, In 1 Timothy 2, says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority. And then he talks about a very practical outcome for this. Uh, part of this is simply wise strategy for the church, that we may live peacefully and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Honor those who are in leadership and engage in politics with an understanding of Jesus's teachings. Now, let me put it this way. Let me put it to you in a form of a question. Uh, Have you ever noticed that people tend to behave badly toward those they disagree with politically? Have you ever noticed that? Well, it's been going on for a long time. Winston Churchill had a lifelong battle with a woman named Nancy Astor, Lady Astor, who was the first woman member of parliament in Greek Britain. Uh, There were many hostile exchanges between the two of them. Uh, In one of them, Lady Astor got furious with Churchill and said to him, if you were my husband, I'd put poison in your coffee. And Churchill's response was, Lady Astor, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. (laughs) It just got dirty between the two of them. Another time, Lady Astor said to him, because he was known to drink occasionally, she said to him, Mr. Churchill, you are very drunk. And he said, that's true, but you are very ugly. And in the morning, I shall be indisputably sober. I mean, they were just horrible toward each other. Uh, People tend to get hostile toward people they disagree with politically. And I just want to get real serious about this for a moment. Uh, Just think about this. Think for a moment about the way that we are to relate to each other in the church uh, as the family of God, right? As the family of God, we would say, we're going to treat each other with the kind of love that God has toward us. Uh, we're, gonna, we're not going to gossip about each other. Uh, we're not going to listen to half-truths about each other. Uh, we're not going to tolerate slander. 
Uh, we're not gonna allow rumors to go unchecked. And I'll just be as frank as I can about this. Those of us who name the name of Jesus should never slander each other because of political views or talk about each other with cruelty or sarcasm. Now understand my spirit on this. I'm not pointing a finger at anyone. I'm guilty of this myself. And here's how we recognize it. Uh, when your heart starts to go bad on this one, you begin to wanna believe bad things about people with whom you disagree with politically. Uh, understand here, I'm not saying everyone has to be on the same page on everything politically. Uh, this cuts much deeper than that. We begin to want to believe bad things about people. And when this dynamic gets going, you don't want to believe good things about people. Uh, you want bad things to be true and you hunger to hear them and to spread them. You tend to exaggerate their bad qualities. You ignore their good ones. And no longer uh, do you think of them as a flesh and blood human being who has a mother and a father and a husband or a wife or children and friends. They become the enemy. Uh, Philip Yancey wrote a very thoughtful book called The Jesus I Never Knew. And he makes this comment toward the end of it. Regardless of the merits of a given issue, whether a pro-life lobby on the right or a peace and just, justice lobby on the left, political movements risk pulling onto themselves the mantle of power that smothers love. From Jesus, I learned that whatever the activism I get involved in, I must not drive out love and humility. Otherwise, I betray the kingdom of heaven. And I believe that we should be concerned in our day about language that divides sides up simplistically into the good guys and the bad guys. And I'll give you an example on this one. And this is kind of a, a harmless example in my opinion. Uh, take the issue of prayer in public schools. Now, when I was in elementary school, I prayed a lot. Uh, I prayed for good grades. I prayed for Jennifer to like me. Uh, I prayed to make it home without getting beat up by the boys who like my sister. Uh, okay, now this is my opinion, okay? I don't want the state to teach my children how to pray. Uh, their teachers may be Muslim. And I believe freedom of religion is a good thing. Uh, many Americans have bled and fought and suffered and died for freedom of religion, for the freedom of people to pray freely. But I don't want my children to be taught how to pray by someone who's praying to another God or to be taught a kind of bland, nonpartisan prayer to an unnamed God. I want my children to be taught about prayer from their mom and dad and from their church. Now, I recognize that many Christians favor some sort of prayer or a moment of silence in school, and that's an okay thing. But here's the point I wanna make. When people make it sound like there's only one Christian position on an issue like this, uh, and it becomes a case of good guys versus bad guys, we're not honoring the cause of Christ. The writers of scripture say, we are to be involved in our government process. We need to be informed, we need to be voting, we need to be activists, but we are to do it humbly with an understanding of the teachings of Jesus Christ. And we are to do it in a way that honors, um, that is honorable toward all people, particularly uh, those who lead us. All right, so last thing. Uh, our political attitudes and involvement 
must reflect the whole counsel of God. Uh, and I want to read a passage from Amos chapter 4. We started this series looking at this passage. And while I look at this passage, I want you to think about this. Why is it that those who express the most passionate concern about the declining sexual morality in our country, they're the ones who often say so little about how we're going to help babies who are born in the ghetto, who have a better chance of going to prison than to college? And on the other hand, why is it that those who express the most passionate concern for equality very often are least likely to express concern about the tragedy of millions of abortions taking place year after year after year? You see, we are called as followers of Christ to have a whole gospel approach to living as citizens under the state. Look at Amos chapter 4. Uh, the last few verses. And I want to talk just for a moment about the kind of concerns that we need to carry with us as we think about our community and our government and so on. And one that just runs right through the Bible from the beginning all the way to the end is the poor. Uh, look at this from the prophet Amos. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaks in the wall and you will be cast out toward Harmon, declares the Lord. Now look at the metaphor he uses at the very beginning of the very first verse. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Uh, now Amos uses this particular metaphor that is not a compliment. Uh, if there's any doubt in your mind, he does not expect people to feel affirmed by this. Uh, he talks about how deeply the oppression of the poor and the lack of compassion for the needy is part of God's agenda. Uh, if you were to read through the Bible, uh, you would find there are three social categories in the Old Testament that are repeated most often. Uh, the orphan, the widow, and the poor. And it's boldly clear, if you study through the Bible carefully, if you look through the Old Testament uh, and allow the Bible to speak for itself, that the basic way the prophets said that this society will be judged by God is its treatment of what, we, what Jesus would call the least of these, the oppressed or the marginalized or the vulnerable people in a society. In the New Testament, Jesus had more to say about money and the poor than any other topic besides the kingdom of God. This is what James said, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by this world. We ought to have a heart of compassion for the poor. We ought to be concerned with the sanctity of life. We ought to be concerned with the sanctity of life of all people, including those who are not yet born. We ought to be involved, not just at the level of legislation, but also to change the attitude and the conscience of a nation. Christians ought to lead the way on environmental issues. I mean, the environment is not a government issue. It's God's issue because God created this environment. We ought to lead the way on this one. Uh, we shouldn't allow someone else to claim that one. 
Christians ought to be concerned with efforts at peacemaking. Uh, for blessed are the peacemakers. I mean, who will work for peace if not the church? And how are we gonna have the moral credibility to make peace, to be peacemakers, if we're not being the church in the world? Christians ought to be concerned with racial alienation that tears this country apart. Uh, Paul says that Jesus died to tear down the dividing wall of hostility that separated the Jew and the Gentile, this great ethnic chasm of his day. And we live in a society uh, that is just filled with dividing walls of hostility, and Jesus died to tear them down. If followers of Christ are not involved in tearing down walls that alienate people, we are making a joke of the cross. I mean, it is not an option. Christians should be concerned with education. Uh, we ought to be concerned about the education of our children. We ought to be concerned about the education of every child. We ought to be concerned for the kind of society that uh, values family, that promotes family, that uh, promotes the kind of moral values that build character and enable people to be Christ followers, to be salt and light in this world. Now, in the church, we need to be aware, and this is so important, there will be differences among well-intended believers about how these values and goals will be achieved. There will be differences about strategy, and we need to be aware of that. And we need to handle those differences in Christ-honoring ways. We need to be informed and we need to be involved in light of the teachings of Jesus, in light of God's heart for this world. But we must also be grace-filled, humble people who don't have all the answers. We've got to live in the realization that the hope of the world at the end of the day is the gospel of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. And I wanna close by asking us all to pray together for our country and for our church. Would you pray with me? God, would you bless America? In the words of the old song, uh, God, crown our good with brotherhood. Would you bring a new birth of community to this nation? Would you bring about reconciliation? Would you uh, bring about compassion? God, in the words of the old song, guide us through the night with light from above. God, how we need your wisdom. God, how those of us who lead need wisdom. Those who lead us need wisdom. We pray for them all, God, that you would pour out your light, that you would pour out your wisdom and discernment and grace and your courage to follow their conviction. God, in the words of the old song, would you mend our every flaw? And God, we pray for our church. God, through your spirit, would you protect the unity and the purity of your church? Would you help us to work for good uh, for all those who live in our communities? God, would you help us to remember what's required of us to, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you, our God? And God, would you help us to remember that your church is the hope of the world because we proclaim the gospel that this world so desperately needs to hear. And we pray this all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our 
weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.45, 10, and 11.15. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.